Chapter 7 Sheila stirred, opened her eyes a little, squeezed them tight against faint light. A dark shape was bending over her. She saw the tousled hair silhouetted against the glow. McAllister. Her voice came out all thick and slurred. She couldn't even feel her lips. He faded and everything went dark. She barely felt him lift her. Heard someone say, Rufus, is she okay? Fine, McAllister's whisper. She needs sleep, that's all. Where's Suzanne? She can get cheer into bed. He sounded very far away. She couldn't speak, couldn't even open her eyes. But it didn't matter. He knew. He knew and was covering for her. She felt his arms tighten about her, felt the faint jolt as he crossed the observatory floor and set his feet on the companionway. Easy! Rufus sounded concerned. Nice man, Rufus. Very nice. She was only half aware of reaching the elevator, of the doors sliding shut, the lurch as it moved down. The elevator whine faded. She heard other sounds of wind and distant baying and the whisper of snow. She shivered. Cold. It was so cold. And the night was wide and dark on the empty plain. No sign of either man or beast, though they weren't far behind. A head barely visible beneath the windy stars. A woman struggled alone, bent under the weight of a heavy pack, and bundles hung about her person. Shira moved closer, glimpsed the face muffled by black doishan. Anilda! Discorda, fleeing for her life across the icy waste, her mind fixed on the way ahead, on saving her new-born grandchild. Sharp as diamond points, the cold, hard stars scored the sky. One space to dawn. And Hilda, trying to keep her mind off the cold and the pain from the long night's struggle, listened to the snufflings and rustlings around her, the quick, sharp screams of prey, the growls of hunter defending fresh meat, the rush of sudden streams, the whisper of dead heathbrass, the rattle of pods on high thrachen. One space to dawn. She outrun, outwitted those who must certainly be tracking her. 
men beside themselves with fury at their broken law. But she felt no elation. Through those sounds, her ears strained for the least warning that after all her preparation, she was outrun before she could go to ground. Inside her underbodice, squashed against her small breasts, were Tazru, cherished writings, her own scribed history of her kind, culled from what Bend records had survived for millennia since as far back as the time of Emperor Gar I, all copied on to wafer-thin hide in legends that only she could understand. Around her middle were slung light packs of unleavened hoya pellets, bundles of bohar, thin strips of dried har meat, enough to last a week or two. Against her right hip hung her water bottle, filled that morning, and with it a flask of something warm against this day's contingency. With those bottles hung a small pouch of coarse black grains, ground balicor bark, which, when sprinkled in her wake, gave out a scent not readily detectable by her human hunters, but strong enough to drive the Adahi running in ecstatic circles. A good half of it was used already. She must be careful to leave enough for her final hiding place. From her left hip hung a bulkier pack of her most treasured remedies. Among them, Talik, for blessed numbness, Chanuga, Perja, Sweet Salix, Healer's Balm, and Choya, with which daily to anoint the baby's brow all it would need for the full half sun around on its dormancy, if it still lived, pray the choir. The obegon hung behind, sealed in an old anuk, the frame's harness strapped in the customary way around her neck and middle. No time to see if it survived. Her mouth tightened. What if this were all for naught? That fool Anka Ragnar, for even thinking that she could wish to harm the child or anyone. Rather, she'd made the earliest preparations to save it, should it prove other than normal, just as she'd done with the first, before it had ceased to live of its own accord and all might have gone well, but for that man's incredible blind adamancy. Now through him, the whole fend knew of the Obergon, and her darling Vorin had died. And Hilda's face went stiff. Ah, she should be glad that Vorin had gone in ignorance and without pain. In all the months, while Vorin waxed large, and Hilda had weighed over and over the appalling choices 
if her vision proved true, and the Obergon was born. At best, Aurene would have delivered in secrecy, and Anilda would have fled with it, as now. A mysterious flight, certainly, and highly suspicious, but leaving no proof of Obergon. Aurene would have been safe and the child. But once the Obergon was known, Aurene was doomed to die in some way, either by Drosimacy or, if Anhilda denounced him, at the stake with Ragnar and Anhilda herself. For how could she possibly have gotten Aurene away? Even had she been able, the dear girl would never have left Ragnar. Such a lovely child as she'd ever been. Obedient and good. Too obedient and good to be weaned from fend ways. Too like her father, poor man, who'd died in a blizzard watching the pens, not having wit enough to quit his post. So Anhilda's only choice had been for the child. That, long since made and prepared for, and Hilda had waited behind the house, had watched Anchor hurl the baby into the moon muck, then set off up the rise for the headman's house. Ragnar gone, she'd scrambled down for the baby, found it intact under the box. Alive or dead, she couldn't tell. If alive, it wouldn't breathe perceptibly for full half a sun around. If dead, the first stiffness wouldn't show until the morrow. No time to weigh the odds. She took it up, clawed her way out of the pit, boots and skirts both smeared, and prepared to run. Now must her darling die. Ola would have Dosimacy. If planning had been hard, leaving was harder. And Hilda ran around to the front door to find it wide open and Foreen on the path. And Hilda set down the child and went to raise her daughter. Laxra, dear one, Panic smote her belly at the tell-tale signs. She put her right hand on Doreen's heart, her left on the throat, to catch and hold the sputtering life-spark. Doreen didn't even open her eyes. Mother, she murmured, and her spirit flowed out into the night. And Hilda had stayed crouching there, holding Vorin to her in plain sight of the deserted road, struggling to accept the ineffable will of the Qua. In her grief, taking one small comfort. Not for Vorin now, the hideous death by the knife, and not for Anhilda herself, the agony of leaving daughter 
in order to save daughter's child. Born of grief came a thought, not solace, but a hard, bright flash of clarity. The stuff of that day had been woven intact into the world's web according to the will of the choir. Whole, integral, and non-negotiable. From this, Skorda took direction and impetus, got to her feet, and looked down. Long ago, she'd put her darling to bed each night with a bath and a tail and a good night kiss, blessing the choir that Corinne had not been born and overcome. And Hilda tugged a stray lock of hair, tucked it angrily under her doishan. What arrogance to bless the source, as though it worked solely on her behalf. Her eyes blurred. Corinne's form starred and wavered. One last time, she'd lay her girl to rest, try to ease in part this forced abandonment. As Anne Hilda bent to lift Corinne, her scorder's inner sense brought her back up again. The men were here. If the Obergon lived, she must save it. She picked it up and retreated into shadow as the torch-lit procession crested the rise, gave hasty valediction as Ragnar strode down the road. Then she turned from Doreen and sped home through dark backyards. Doggedly keeping pace, and Hilda went on eyes firmly fixed on a point betwixt earth and sky, seeing, yet not seeing, the dips and hollows across her path. Why did she take such risk for this baby? Because it was her grandchild? Or because of her scorder's commitment to life? Both, and more. Over the waiting months, she'd felt a growing certainty, an overwhelming conviction that if this child should prove an overgun, it must be saved, and that it was her destiny, by the grace of the choir, to pluck it and preserve it from destruction. For why, or for what? She did not, could not know. But that that was her task and burden, she had no doubt. Neither did she hesitate to obey the dictates of this strong and innermost certitude. Where would it lead them? She stumbled slightly, turning her ankle, exclaiming in pain and annoyance coming abruptly back to the present. Nowhere, if she did not mind her step. 
she glanced up at the wide sky. Hadn't bright Forthia slipped a little awry? No, it was she who'd gone off course. Adjusting her direction, she set her night vision on the horizon, praying that she'd not strayed too far, as from behind her, snow cover crawled overhead, winking out Eloida and Pathion, Rakachta and Foe, erasing with black swirling stuff their slow night tracings. Anilda sniffed and rubbed her face, then thrust her knuckles for warmth inside her doishan, for she'd have need of nimble fingers soon, please the quoi. Her cottage was gone by now. In fact, glancing back once or twice, she fancied she saw the glow of its passing reflected against the low sky. This she'd long prepared for, had lived each day beneath its rafters as though it were her last. Familiar walls, lined with all the accumulated treasures of those who'd gone before her, stuffs of scordery, of dyeing and weaving. She sighed a long, broken sigh, thinking of her spinning wheel, her looms, the back harness hanging by the wall, the half-finished arras that she'd worked on for almost a sun around, depicting the legend of Ao and Demiel's watered union. A lifetime's craft gone, and when would she have wheel and loom again, if it was meant that she survived? Bad enough for her to lose craft and livelihood. What of the innocents who'd suffer loss of scorder most grievously come this first cold snap? Fool! If Inga Log got it into his head that the law required it, he'd raise the fend entire. She could see that calm, fanatical face reflecting the flame, solemn and pious as a child at a keening. A keening. And Hilda doubled up, fighting tightness in lung and throat. She fumbled in an inner pocket for two small pebbles, found sutro, easer of pain. She tightened her fist about the little stone, let it draw her grief until it grew too hot to hold. Then, resolutely, she squared her shoulders and struck out once more through the break. Less than an hour now to her hiding place. Small comfort. It wanted but minutes to dawn. The men, where were they? She pictured a hasty bunch of them running for Adahi, setting them to the tracking brace. They'd follow her on foot, of course, expecting to catch her after a mile or two at most. 
she's married bitterly. What countered their priced strength and stamina against craft and main cunning? Did they think she'd learned nothing all these years? Sleeping under the stars? Really under the stars, not beneath those fancy herding shelters that took three men to set up. She knew these wastes as well as any wild creature out there, where to find root and herb for the dying and healing arts, every creek and waterfall, hole and cave. She'd crossed six brooks already, left Balakor by their banks, enough to send Theodahi running in wild circles, enough to buy her extra time. The snow started. In minutes, it would cover, and she'd leave tracks. She paused for a breath space, trying to decide. She'd never make the place of rocks now, her chosen hiding place, long stocked against this day, with ample room to lie, food already stored, and four gathered bales of warm, dry straw, not to mention a store of hard-earned shames. But not to despair. There was a nearer place, an emergency bolt hole. With luck, she could hide there and hope to shake the hunt, then pray the choir, if the snows held off she might still safely reach that farther refuge. She scrambled over and around boulders, skirting where she could the thickening vraken. Having halted for even that brief span to get her bearings, had set blood pounding painfully through her legs and her lungs, started sweat on her skin that would chill her now. Each fresh step was fire and pain. In her knees, her feet, her back bent ever lower under the increasing weight of the Anuk's rigid frame, while the harness, never meant for such prolonged use, pulled her shoulders and chafed her spine. All at once, she heard, not the sound she'd been hoping for, of water splashing from a great height into a pool, but another that sent her blood cold. The baying again, a dahi hot on the scent. How long before she reached the fall? It hadn't seemed so many steps on her practice runs, but then she'd been fresh and prepared without the weight on her back, and the fear. Snowflakes whispered past her face, caught at her doisham, while through a chance rift above, dawn light bled into cloud, and all around, knobby clumps of sparkling scrub began to glow with a sick effulgence. A ragged winged creature started from a thicket, changed its mind, and fluttered back down. 
and Hilda peered ahead, alert for a sign, any sign. Nothing. She glanced behind. Not enough snow yet to leave tracks. But then the Adahi needed no eyes. How far back were they? In answer, the bane came, excited and closing past. She forced herself to stand still, listening. A sudden gust of wind, turning about, carried the unmistakable noise of rushing water. She moved on, spurred by new hope, but carefully. The ground now was black-veined with sudden springs to turn an ankle or wrench a knee and popped with mud holes to suck a body down. She dodged from tuft to tuft of hoar-grass, guided by secret pointers towards her shelter. Bush, rock, a rotting stump of balacor. In passing, she plucked a strip of the soft, wet bark and tucked it into her belt to augment her few remaining grains. Not far now. The bane sounds were overtaking fast. Oh, yes, those sharp grey snouts had her scent, even over the marsh. They'd be running belly flat, jowls flapping, hot saliva streaming onto the feathered snow, the men running in their wake. She continued deliberately to the far edge of the marsh, balancing with difficulty under her unfamiliar load. Once she slipped altogether, caught at an hawker branch to steady herself, tore her sleeve and scratched her cheek, but saved herself from headlong fall into the death pits on either side. The marsh pools linking up finally, her path was now but a narrow, bumpy spine twisting off into whirling snow. Surely, surely she must be... Yes! The path fanned out into folds of shale filled with mud. She broke into a run, high Orcsia's talons seizing her lungs, his rushy wing beats clapping her ears as she began to climb higher and higher, and there it was, the cleft where a spring cut the bank to flash over and down into a large rock pool fifteen feet below on the other side. She followed it, slipping, slithering over an almost vertical bank, the cliff really, fetching up at last where the waterfall tumbled into a pool whose wide edges were already beginning to ice over. By the waterfall was the entrance to her hole, a mossy slab overhung with orat and wembervine shoulder-high. Indiscernible from the rest of the stony embankment in which it was embedded. Her mark at the slab's left edge was all but weathered away.
the place where she must set her hand to push the slab open on its pivot. A loud call came overhead. A man urging on the Adahi. They were close, and they knew it. Was she too late? She pushed. Nothing happened. She pushed again, harder. The slab was fused tight shut. Grunting with the effort, she pushed at different places, then finally, in her desperation, tore at the rock lip, bruising her frozen fingertips, but still it wouldn't budge. Wind and weather had undone all her careful preparation. Another call came, and another. She glanced up, expecting to see the first head appear. She heaved again, and this time the rock lip gave slightly, not much, but just enough to slip her fingers inside. She eased it more, then more, and there she had it, just enough space to squeeze past. And Hilda took out the rotted ballycor bark, and bending down, quickly stuffed it into a crack beside the slab. Then she opened the pouch and emptied it at the pool bank, roughing with her foot the last black grains into dead undergrowth, free as yet of snow. She slid into her bolt hole, had it almost shut, and cried out. In the centre of her narrowing line of vision, directly across the pool from where she was, a man stood stock still under the flying snow, and he was staring straight at her. Thank mm -hmm. you.